When I open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at a very uh, familiar portion of Scripture this morning. We're doing a little mini-series in between our book studies here. We just finished the book of Romans, and we're doing a uh, little series called The Grand Invitation, speaking of evangelism, how we should share our faith. Uh, last week, just the way of review, we looked at workers for the Lord out of Matthew chapter 9, and we saw that... First of all, we need to see as Jesus saw. And uh, one of the things that Jesus saw was the great need of lost people. Jesus saw lost people as distressed, dispirited, and without a shepherd. One thing I saw this morning on my way to the church, about 6 o'clock I guess it was, I pulled around the corner here and there was a man out there. He had no shoes on, had pants on, no shirt long, kind of straggly hair, and uh, he was in front of the shell station there, and he's running around in circles. I was just sitting there at the stop sign. I thought, okay, what do I do here? And uh, he ran into the pole. He fell down on the ground. He curled up in a fetal position. He got up. He jumped over the fire hydrant that's down there, tripped, hit, fell again. It just kind of running around, not making any sense. And I rolled down my window. I said, do you need some help? He started yelling. I thought, okay, this isn't good. So I pulled around the shell station, just parked in the parking lot, and was just watching him, and I thought, I'll call 911. So I did, and the police came and were able to, he had a band on, and I guess he got out of the hospital somehow. So he was kind of 5150, but he, uh, um, they got him in custody and took him back where he could get some help. Now, I could have very easily just driven, you know, like a lot to do this morning, and said, well, that guy take care of himself. But... You know, part of me is reminded that when we see the need of people, you know, it doesn't mean that we just interact with everybody in an unsafe manner. It would have been unsafe for me to get out of my car and go over to that man and interact with him because he, who knows, he was not in his right mind. But at least I got him some help. And sometimes we go through life and we forget that Jesus, when he was here on earth, he saw all that. He saw people who were deranged. He saw people who were demon-possessed, who were dealing with ailments. And he always took time to uh, really have compassion on them. And so he saw the need of, great, of, of lost people. He also saw the great harvest of lost people. There's so many people here, especially in the Bay Area, in all the world actually, but, uh, that need the Lord that do not have the truth. And he's given it to us to share with them. And then thirdly, we looked at last week, Jesus saw the great need of workers for the harvest. So it's not just the idea that <clears throat> we just sit back in our armchairs of grace and do absolutely nothing. God calls us to be affirmative in our action in the gospel. And so we need to see as Jesus saw. We also saw that uh, last week we need to feel as Jesus felt. And we saw how Jesus had compassion on people. He just didn't brush them aside. Um, and then the third thing we said we need to do as Jesus did, and he ministered to the physical and spiritual needs of people, but he also prayed to God that he would send forth more workers. That's a prayer that never uh, needs to stop being prayed. We all need more workers in the harvest. So I guess this morning as we turn our hearts to Ephesians chapter 2, I just want to remind you that this is a very common portion of Scripture. This, this verse, Ephesians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, but then also I th- wanted to conclude verse 10. And so if you turn in your Bibles and follow along as I read this for us this morning, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, some may be saying, well, why do we need to hear this? What does it mean to be saved? I grew up in the church, or I've been in Sunday school, or I already have been through this. I know all this stuff. Well, I think it's important that we remind ourselves of the importance of the truths of the gospel because we have a tendency to grow complacent with them. 
if we've been saved for any time at all. So this is kind of not a graduate course in theology. This is kind of like taking you back to uh, Theology 101 Kindergarten okay today. So I want you to be patient with me as we go through this, but also uh, it's very important that we get the message of the gospel right. And we're going to be going over this next week as well. Last week we looked at the motivation for the gospel for us to share the gospel. Today we want to look at as well as next week the message of the gospel. What does it mean to be saved? Well, the gospel, the good news, as we call it, about salvation is foundational to everything else we believe, if you think about it. And because of that, because it's so foundational to our Christian faith, guess what? Satan is continuously attacking the truths of the gospel. He's trying to reinvent the gospel. He's trying to get us off track of the gospel. And when you do that, when you get off Take your eyes off the gospel as believers and you forget what it means and how we are to share it, it messes everything else up. It's really tough to make any headway in your Christian life if you don't understand the basics of the gospel. And so Satan is unrelentless in his attack, is relentless in his attack, excuse me, in attacking the gospel. He just continues to do it. And so We want everyone who's here this morning to understand the gospel by the end of the morning. Now, this isn't a deep study, but I pray that you'll get something out of it. So there's a couple ways that the gospel has been attacked today. Um, A lot of times people want to convey the gospel in ways that it's not biblical. Sometimes people present the gospel as if Jesus were just kind of a uh, self-help guru. (laughs) You know, Jesus will help you in your marriage. He'll help you in your finances. He'll help you in your work ethic. He'll help you in your family. Uh, If your personal life is falling apart, Jesus will help you get everything back together again. Whatever miracle you need, just try Jesus because he's there for you. Well, I want to tell you that that's true. He does help you with your family. He does help you with your finances. He does help you in various ways. But that is not the gospel. That is not what the gospel is about. Uh, Some people are encouraged to come to Jesus for whatever help they may need. Uh, Their felt needs, we call it. You know, if you just come to Jesus, he'll help you with this or he'll help you with that. Uh, They're promised instant results. And so you have a lot of people trying religion, trying Christ. Oh, you know, I have a drinking problem, so I think I'll give this Jesus a try. And then when it doesn't pan out the way they want it to, what do they do? Well, I've been there, done that. I don't, it doesn't work. See, the truth in that lure of that false gospel is that the Lord does provide help for us with our personal problems after we come to him for salvation. He does do that. But those promises to help us are not the gospel. We can't get this confused. Uh, In many instances, people have come to Christ for salvation, and guess what? Their problems get worse. Uh, Just read through Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you can see how bad it will get. (laughs) Uh, Some have been killed because they've trusted Christ. So the gospel is definitely not about what Mr. Olstein thinks, how to have your best life now. That's not the gospel. That's just a positive message that tickles people's ears. But probably the most frequent place where the devil attacks the gospel is the confusion that people have between faith and good works. There's a lot of confusion in that, the relationship between our faith and our works. Many evangelicals today argue that since we're saved by faith alone, if you mention anything about repentance or submitting to Christ as as Lord, well, that muddies up the gospel. And 
under that teaching, a person can make a profession of faith, and yet later in life, because they've said a prayer when they were three or four, later in life, uh, they can totally deny Christ and become an atheist. And yet people who hold strongly to that view would say, well, yeah, but they're still a believer. They're just backslidden. Um, If you want a good read on these things, MacArthur has two good books, The Gospel According to Jesus and Faith Works is the other book. Both of them talk about the essentials of faith and works, how they fit together. And this view is confused about the nature of saving faith. It gives assurance of salvation to many people who never truly have been saved. I used to tell kids in our youth group, no Jesus, no change. No change, no Jesus. It's that simple. If Jesus, ha- if Jesus has not impacted your life in some manner where you can visibly see a change in your life, then there's something wrong. Now, on the other hand, you have people who go the other direction. You have the new perspective on Paul today in theology who turns salvation into basically joining a covenant of community and living a life of faithfulness, and that's good. That's all it's about. And that's an oversimplification of that view, but it seems fair to say that the proponents deny that sinners are justified by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. They don't believe that, those who believe this new perspective on Paul theology. Their view is similar, really, to the Roman Catholic Church, which I grew up in, that teaches justification is by faith plus works over a lifetime. (laughs) I don't know about you, but that does not sound like good news. There's no good news in that message, that you can be saved by faith plus your works over the entire lifetime of your life. Uh, All the cults also teach some form of salvation by good works. And the way to discern is is to ask people. If people come up and say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And you're trying to discern whether or not they're a Christian. A good question to ask them, and people have used this for years, is why should God let you into heaven? If you ask people that question, their answer is, will literally tell you whether or not they are in the faith or not. The answer you mostly hear by people who are asked that question just out on the street is, you know what, I've tried to be a good person. (laughs) Or they say things like, you know, I've never really intentionally hurt anyone and I've tried to live a good life. There's a lot of people even within evangelical churches that would give that answer. I go to church. I was baptized. I went to youth camp. That's not the question. Why should God let you into heaven? You really think when you're standing before God at the gates of heaven, if he were to ask you that question, and you were to say, well, I went to youth camp. (laughs) Or you know what, I help the homeless. He's going to say, okay, come on in. No. See, to bear witness to people who think like that, you need to be clear on what the gospel is and what it means. So I hope the message this morning will kind of give us a spiritual foundation upon which to build our evangelistic efforts in the future. In Ephesians chapter 2, as we read that, it basically states that God saves us apart from any human works by grace through faith, resulting in a life of good works resulting in a life of good works. Most people are fine with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But somehow they forget verse 10 that says that he has created us in Christ Jesus for good works that he even prepared beforehand for us to do, that we would walk in them. So it's not just about getting to the goal line of salvation, It's about living a life that's honoring to Christ after that salvation takes place. 
Uh, surveys have shown that a majority of American Protestants agree that the way to be ex- accepted by God is to try sincerely to live a good life. I mean, that's just crazy, but that's what they believe. To bear witness to people who think this way, you have to be clear on what it means to be saved. And so when you stop and and think about these things, it was Calvin who talked about, John Calvin who talked about the relationship between faith and works. And he says, it is faith alone which justifies, and yet faith which justifies is not alone. Do you hear that? It is faith alone which justifies, and yet faith which justifies is not alone. I mean, we are prepared, I hope, to die for the doctrine of justification by faith. We've just gone through the book of Romans. Hopefully we have a pretty good grasp of what that means. And to assert before all adversaries that salvation is not of works. But we also confess that if we're justified by faith, it must produce works. And if any man has a faith which does not produce works, it is the faith of devils. We are saved by faith without works, but not by a faith that is without works. For the real faith that saves the soul works by love and purifies a person's character. We've all experienced that, those who've come to Christ. We've seen how he's changed our lives. And now we're doing things that maybe we wouldn't even think of doing before for his glory. Why? Because he's prepared beforehand good works for us to walk in. And so our first point here in the outline today is salvation is totally of God apart from any human works or merit. Paul underscores this truth that no one can save himself by human effort. I mean, we should be thankful that that is a truth that's found in Scripture. Uh, If you look at just a a few verses before there in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 4, he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, Look at verse 5. Even when we were what? What's that word? We were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I mean, the reason that we can't apply any human effort or merit to our salvation is because we're dead. Dead people can do absolutely nothing to remedy their condition. I've never gone to a funeral or done a funeral where a dead person laying there in the casket said, you know, I'm tired of being dead. I think I'm just going to wake myself up and just get up and say, yeah, thanks for coming, but, you know, I decided not to go yet. It doesn't ever happen. Why? Because it's impossible. That person's dead. There's no life there. They can't work toward being raised from the dead. They can't pray for it. They can't even muster up faith to get raised from the dead. It would take an act of God to impart life to a dead man. And that's the only way it's ever happened when Christ, what? Raised someone from the dead. Or the disciples raised someone from the dead through God's power. It was God who raised him from the dead. He just used them as a tool. And just like it takes God to raise someone from the dead... It takes an act of God to save those who are dead in their sins. It takes an act of God. Jesus taught the same thing in, uh, before the text that Emmanuel read this morning in John chapter 3, verse 7. He was talking to the Jewish leader Nicodemus when he told him, Nicodemus, it's not good enough to be a religious leader. You must be what? Born again. I mean, this guy was a devout, moral, religious man. He believed in God. He sought to obey God's word. He did everything by worldly standards right. But none of those qualities will do anything for a man who is spiritually dead. And that's the key. He needs life from God. Now, I don't think anybody here in this room had anything to do 
with their own physical conception or birth. I don't think before you were born, you were saying, well, you know, I, you know, I think I want to be born on May 25th. Yeah, yeah, you know. Somehow communicate to your mother, who's with child, that that's the date. So I'm not coming out before, I'm not coming out after, I'm coming out on May 25th, Mom. None of us could do that. Why? We had no control over it. It's the same thing with our spiritual birth. When you stop and think about it, nothing can bring ourselves from spiritual death to spiritual life. We have nothing to do with that. Now, I'll say this. This is not to say that we are not to urge people to believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. The Bible tells us to do that. Jesus went on to tell Nicodemus in John 3.16 that whosoever believes in him will have what? Eternal life. He didn't tell Nicodemus, just sit back and, you know, if God's going to save you, he's going to save you. No, he says, you know what? You need to believe. Jesus preaching, it's, it's summarized in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus told the or Paul told the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what? You will be saved. So we should urge people to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. Uh, here's a point to keep in mind as you bear witness and urge people to do that. Unless God imparts life to that dead sinner, he will not believe. You can talk till the cows come home. If God does not regenerate life in that dead sinner's heart and soul and a willingness to acknowledge Christ, they will not. John chapter 1 says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, verse 12, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, not of of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. People are saved because God saves them. They're not saved because they found Jesus or they found religion or they they decided to get saved. They're saved because God saved them. Right before that section in John, he's talking about the world's hatred of God and the rejection of Christ. And that's kind of, we live right in the seat of that. But you know what? That in no way frustrates God's plan. I mean, would it be easier to pastor a church in the Bible Belt? Sure. Where there's not so much animosity toward the gospel. But you know what? That's not where God has us. God has us right here on the peninsula where People desperately need to hear the truth. Those whom God willed for salvation before the foundation of the world, Ephesians tells us, will in faith embrace Christ. That should encourage us in our evangelism because you know what? It's not us who does the saving. So if we go out and we share the message with somebody and they don't respond, well, then they don't respond. That's not on us. It's God who needs to save those people change their hearts. We're just the waiter bringing the meal to the table. In John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. All. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. What does that speak of? It speaks of security in Christ. I mean, aren't you thankful that our faith is not left up to our own works? our own merit, that somehow Jesus can't say, okay, you know what? Yeah, you really messed up this time. That's it. You're done. Even though all your sins are paid for, I, I, I give up on you. Forget it. Game over. It will never happen. It will never happen if you've truly come to Christ. And, and that's the glory of the gospel message. To receive Christ involves more than just mere intellectual acknowledgement or assent to all his claims. See, it's not good enough to say, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Well, what do you mean by that? How does that affect your life? The concept of believing in Christ 
really means in following who he is, his name, believing in his name. His name refers to the totality of who Christ is. That's really what that's speaking of. When it says you need to believe in the name of Jesus, you know, there's a lot of people named Jesus, Jesus, you know, all over the place. But you can believe in them all day long. They're not going to save you. They can't save you. But see, Jesus the Christ is different. He's God. And he came here on earth to live for 30-some years a perfect life, a life without sin. And then he went to a cruel cross and he died as the spotless lamb of God, perfect in every way, and yet was willing to take upon himself all of the sin of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in him for salvation. He took it upon himself. Have you ever been blamed for something you didn't do? People thought you did something you didn't do. That, that's hard. When you know you didn't do it and you're standing up and you're saying, I didn't do this, but they're accusing you of something. Can you imagine being perfect and taking sin upon yourself? How hard, how difficult that must have been for Christ? That's why the Bible speaks of salvation as being born again. Not being born of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. So to be saved, a person must have some realization of the fact that he's lost. You have to have some realization that you're lost. As you present the gospel, you have to pray before you do that, that God would work that miracle of regeneration in their heart, even as you're sharing the truths of the gospel with them. But sometimes you have to deliver the bad news before they can hear the good news. Uh, People who need to be saved don't just need a little boost from God. They're dead spiritually. They're standing totally uh, uh, before God in a bad state. (laughs) They're not justified. They're lost in their sin. I mean, there are people out there that think they're doing well. They're trying to do something. But you know what? They're, they're a spiritual corpse. And by the world standard, people look at them and go, oh, look at how involved they are in the community. They help this. They do that. They go to church. They're on the board. They do that. That doesn't matter. That, that means nothing to God. If you're not in Christ, all those things are like filthy rags. So when you think of what it means to be saved, well, first of all, you have to talk about what it means to be lost. Because if somebody doesn't realize they're lost, they're not going to want to be saved. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, describes the lost condition of someone who is without Christ. And we all, even though some of us have been saved, we, we've put our faith and trust in Christ, and we've testified that, wow, he's working in our life. And some of you have been saved for years. Don't ever lose sight of where you were before you came to Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18 says, They are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of heart. That was all of us at one point in time. We stand before a holy God under his just condemnation and wrath. And we need the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's the Holy Spirit's job. John 16, verses 7 to 15 there tells us, verse 8, it says, When he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, Jesus goes on. He says, but you cannot hear them, you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, 
for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That is the role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. He convicts us of sin. So that means that you have to share some bad news before you share the good news. The problem with the church today is that they've jumped right to the good news. They go up to unbelievers who have no sense that they're lost, and they say, hey, we have some wonderful news. God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life, and his son died for your sins. And their response is kind of like, yeah, okay, thanks. Whatever. Glad you, glad you have that belief. They don't appreciate the good news, or they don't respond to it because they don't understand the bad news. That means as we talk to people about Christ, we need to bring up the issue of, you ready? Sin. Sin. We need to bring up the issue of sin. We need to drive it home in their conscience. We need to allow them to think about it. See, don't believe the idea that you have to go out into a lost and dying world and grab people and just say, you know what? Do you believe Jesus died on the cross? Okay, good. All right, great. God bless you. Go. You know, that's not salvation. They need to understand they're lost before they could ever need a Savior. How can you do that? Well, you can take them through some of the, the Ten Commandments. Simply ask them. So you think you're a pretty good person? Oh, yeah. Have you ever told a lie? Wow. Yeah. Well, sure. Who doesn't? Well, that's one of God's commandments, and you just broke it, pal. Have you ever lusted in your mind after someone who's not your, your spouse in a sexual way? Well, who doesn't do that? Well, you just committed adultery according to the Lord. Have you ever taken anything irrespective of its value that's not yours? Not even a paper clip from work? Well, yeah, sure. Who hasn't? Well, you just stole them. That's another one of God's commandments. And you can go down through the commandments and just show them how they're lost, how they're sinners. And sometimes you run into someone like the man in Luke chapter 18, the young man who prided himself in his obedience of all the commandments. But Jesus said, basically, in the end of that story, you haven't even kept the main commandment which is to love God and to have no other gods before him because his God was his money, the rich young ruler. And the Bible says that apparently he, didn't be, he wasn't converted right then. It says because the young man went away sad. I've never had anyone come to Christ and be saved out of their sin and then turn to me and say, wow, this just makes me so miserable and so sad. I wish I never would have done this. I've never had anybody done that. Ever. Now, I've had people who've fallen into religion, who've gotten into a church, and they're not even saved, and they do all this religious stuff thinking they're saved, and they end up getting frustrated and leave. But that's different. I've never had someone who's genuinely saved have any kind of remorse that they've committed their life to Christ. And so we need to point this out to people. They need to understand that they are lost. Secondly, to be saved means that the Lord Jesus Christ has rescued us from God's wrath and judgment. It means that he's rescued us. See, once you give them the bad news that, you know what, you're sitting under the wrath and judgment of a holy God because of your own sin. It doesn't matter if it's 50 or just one. But because of that sin... God has to judge you. But when we are saved by Christ's sacrifice on the cross, by our trusting in it, putting our faith in it, he saves us, he forgives us of our sins, what that means is we are rescued from that position of judgment and wrath before a holy God. Now, that's not a popular, those aren't popular words to go out and start sharing with people. Do you know that you're under the wrath of God? You're not going to win friends and influence people that way, okay? Uh, but it's important that we use biblical words. And that's what the Bible says. 
that as lost individuals, we stand before a holy God under his wrath and his judgment. See, our culture would rather believe in someone who would, a God who would just be all loving and all, all accepting. You know, it's just okay, just do what you want and try your best. And in the end, I'm sure he'll, be, he'll, he'll get you through somehow. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. They want God to be a God who will give them a happy life. And yet Jesus said, basically, that's just the opposite of what you're going to have. He committed us to a life of suffering as believers. We can't legitimately claim to follow Jesus and at the same time deny the reality of coming judgment. To be saved from drowning means that you were about to die when someone rescued me. You know, if, if I had someone come to me who was swimming in a pool and they said, oh, my, I almost drowned. Well, what happened? Oh, nothing. I was just out there playing in the pool. And, you know, and then I swam over here and I told you, oh, I almost drowned. Well, they didn't almost drown. That's, that's a ridiculous story. But if I said, well, what happened? Well, I was out in the middle of the pool and I started taking water and I, I sunk to the bottom of the pool and the lifeguard came in and saved me and revitalized me and got the water out of my lungs and that's salvation. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's salvation, from death to life. Thirdly, God saves us by his grace alone, which excludes human works or merit. Uh, The best news in the world is that God saves us by his grace alone. Would you believe that? I I hope you do. That's what he says there in chapter 2 of Ephesians. He says it in verse 5. He says it in verse 7. For by grace you've been saved. Verse 7, he says, So then in the ages to come, to know he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And just in case we missed it, he comes back to it in verse 8 of Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Uh, That is so crucial to the gospel. That's why the enemy attacks it. That's why the enemy comes up with a gospel that says, well, yeah, you're saved by grace, but you still, you have to belong to this church, or you have to do this, or you have to do that. He tries to get us to tone the gospel down to make it something less than what it really is. I heard one well-known Christian seminar leader define grace as this, the motivation and power to do God's will. I mean, God, I'm sure, gives us motivation. I'm sure God gives us power to do His will. But that's not grace. That's not even near the definition of grace. The definition of grace is simply unmerited favor. God giving you something you totally do not deserve. Giving you his favor when you deserve his wrath. That's what grace is. See, if we get what we have coming, we will spend eternity, all eternity in hell. All of us. But instead, God forgives all of our sins, and he bestows the unfathomable riches of Christ on us, apart from anything we could do to add to that. He just does it because he's God, and he loves us, and he saves us. But see, we live in a society where there's always a catch. We always want to believe, well, wait, what do you mean? You're giving me this, but what's the real, what what do you really want here? You know, if you don't believe me, just go try to give somebody something. Most people look at you like you're nuts. You just want to give this to me? They can't understand that. See, Paul says in Romans, when we went through Romans, he said this. He says, if God gives grace to undeserving sinners then I can sin. He knew that what people would be thinking. If God just gives us this grace and we don't deserve it and he just saves us, well then, Paul asked this question. Then I can sin all I want. 
Remember that? So that grace may abound? He anticipates the reaction, and he says, may it never be. See, if that's your idea of grace, the idea that you're going to get saved, and now, because all your sins are forgiven, you can go live like the devil. Just get a free pass on everything. That's, you've not been touched by God's grace. You don't understand God's grace if that thought pops into your mind. What this means is God can save the worst of sinners just as they are. They don't have to clean up. They don't have to do any penance. They don't have to do any good works to qualify for that salvation. Paul himself, in 1 Timothy 1, says that he was the chief of sinners. I mean, Paul, when he was Saul, what was he doing? He was out killing Christians. Almost for sport, for his religion. He thought, well, this is the right thing to do. He was the chief of sinners. But God showed him what? God showed him mercy. God showed him grace. And he said that God justifies the ungodly sinner in Romans 4, who does not work, but believes in Christ. See, don't ever think that you have to work for your salvation. Christ is there, God is there to accept you just as you are, with all of your sin, with all of your stain, with all the other stuff, the baggage that comes along. And he says, you know what? I'm going to grant to you salvation. I'm going to save your soul. I'm going to open your eyes to the blessings of the gospel, to the blessings of Christ. And you're going to desire him like you've desired none other. That's salvation. In Romans 5, verse 6, Paul says, For while we were still helpless or still sinners at the right time, Christ died for us. That should be encouraging to us. Why? How many of you have been praying for relatives? How many of you have been, you know, just, boy, I don't know if this is, you know, at the right time, God will save the people he's going to save. It's in his hands. And in Romans 5, 8, he says, But God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That has the idea of, you know what? You're a sinner and God's not over there on holy ground saying, okay, clean up yourself a little bit. Take a shower. You know, do a little. I'm kind of a clean freak that way. I take a lot of showers and baths and all kinds of things. I just don't like to be dirty. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's just kind of weird because it's like, okay, I'm, I, I just took a shower, but I still feel kind of dirty. It's out in the garage sweating or whatever, so I gotta, I gotta take a shower. Okay? It, it's so wonderful to know that God, and yet while we were dirty, He loved us. He didn't say, go take a shower first. It's kind of like sometimes, you know, in the morning, people get up. And it's like, wow, okay. We've all been taught early on. You get out of bed. One of the first things you do is what? Go to the bathroom and you brush your teeth. And when you're around somebody that doesn't do that, I'll tell you what. I mean, you notice it. You know, but you know what? God says, you know what? You don't even have to brush your teeth. I love you just the way you are. That's so important to understand. There's hope for any sinner, no matter how evil they were. Well, what about... Pick a, pick a per, Bin Laden, whoever. The most hideous criminal out there. If they were to acknowledge Christ as payment for their sin, and God were to save them, they would be saved. And you know what? We would see them in heaven one day. We, we just can't fathom that in our mind. That there's that kind of a hope for the lost doesn't matter how evil they were, if they're willing to abandon the idea of good works as a way to heaven and believe in Christ, God will save them. So we need to understand what saving faith is. Secondly, God's gift of salvation is received through faith alone. 
Saving faith is not some vague general belief in God. Yeah, I, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. You know, we celebrate Christmas and Easter and all that. It's not just agreeing with the facts. I, as a youth pastor, I've been in churches over the years where I can remember back on children who've grown up in the Awana program, and they've memorized vast portions of Scripture, more than I've ever even memorized. And they know it just like that. And they're homeschooled, and they go to the Christian school, and everything's Christian, Christian, Christian. And then you hear years later, they're an atheist. Or they're not even living for Christ. They're living a life that's immoral. They're doing something that's so far from their upbringing, it just rattles you. It's like, what went wrong here? These were kids who used to sing the songs in youth group. These were kids that would serve and, and do all kinds of things in the name of Christ. And your heart just breaks because we realize it's not just agreeing with certain facts. Saving faith has three elements. Saving faith includes knowledge, assent, and trust. First, there has to be knowledge. Faith is not just a blind leap into the dark. That's not what faith is. Some people say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. You ever hear that? That's ridiculous. I mean, that's like tossing somebody a, a, a bottle of pills for their sickness and say, here, just take these. What are they? Don't worry about it. Just take them. As long as you're sincere, you'll get better. Does it matter what the medication is? Oh, no. Just be sincere. To be saved, you must know something about God. You have to know that he's righteous, that he's holy, that he's just, that he's loving. You must also know that you have sinned against this holy God and you stand condemned before him. You must know that God sent his eternal son, Jesus, who took on human flesh, that's why we celebrate Christmas, through the virgin birth. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross, bearing the penalty that sinners deserve. The Bible says he became sin for us. But because God was pleased with his sacrifice, the Bible says that he raised him on the third day from the dead and then he ascended into heaven. And one day he will return bodily to judge the living and the dead. But he will also save all that have trusted in him. Those are essential facts to know in order to be saved. If a person lacks knowledge of the gospel, I, I pray that they would read the gospel of John. And it would, it would lead them down the path towards salvation. Secondly, you have to give assent to these facts. You must ag agree that they're true. Some people, uh, one person asked me one time, well, do you think someone could be saved if they didn't believe Jesus was God? No. No. So you're saying, you know, a Mormon couldn't? No. <laughs> no, they cannot be saved unless they come to Christ as their Lord and Savior fully trusting in his work on Calvary. You know, a student can know facts well enough to pass an exam. But that doesn't mean you affirm that they are true. I've talked to college students who, yeah, you know what, I don't believe this stuff, but this is the answer they want me to give. So I just put it down, just to get the degree, and then I'll get out of here. They're just answering the questions. They don't really believe this stuff. Saving faith includes giving intellectual assent to the truth of these facts. But if that's all that saving faith entails, then Satan and the demons are saved <laughs> because they believe the same stuff. They believe the same thing. They know it to be true. The third element of saving faith is personal trust or some people call it a commitment to Christ as their Lord and Savior. You know, you might have read all the manuals that are available on a certain aircraft. 
You may know the pilot. You may know the mechanic. You may know everything about a certain aircraft. But knowing those facts and affirming them will not get you anywhere. The only way you're going to fly is not just standing in front of the airplane agreeing that that airplane can fly. To go anywhere, you must entrust yourself to the plane, to its pilots, to its mechanics, and then get on board. We do that all the time in life. And yet when it comes to a spiritual thing, people have an issue with it. Saving faith means that you personally trust Jesus Christ to deliver you from God's judgment by what he did for you on the cross. You trust God's promise in his word to justify the one who has faith in Jesus. That's what he says. Basically, you're getting on board with Christ. You don't just keep one foot on the ground. You can't keep one foot in the world and and one foot over there with Jesus. It doesn't work that way. It's all or nothing. You commit yourself totally to Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, as your God. He is both Savior and Lord. We don't make Him Lord. You hear this all the time with people when they're talking about salvation. We don't make Him Lord. He already is Lord. We just assent to the fact that, you know what? He is Lord. He is in control of everything. You can't take one without the other. Some people believe today that, well, you can come to Jesus as Savior and get saved, but He doesn't have to be your Lord. You can go live like the devil, but your sins are forgiven. That's not biblical. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says if you come to Christ, you have to come to him as Savior and Lord. And the people that oppose that view call it lordship salvation. They say that basically you're, you're, you're putting a work out there. You're saying you need to make Jesus Lord of your life. He's already Lord. You don't make him anything. Some wonder, though, if God saves us through faith in Christ then can't we take some credit for our salvation? Saving faith is what? It's a gift of God to us. Uh, When you read that in Ephesians 2, verse 8, Charles Hodge argues that that word that or this refers to faith, which best results in Paul's argument here, it suits Paul's argument. Calvin, a lot of modern experts, really say that that word that refers to an entire process of salvation by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves. In other words, it doesn't come from yourself. Well, whether it's the faith or the whole process of salvation, it doesn't matter. The idea is, is that it's God who's doing the saving. Natural man looks at the cross of Christ as foolishness. That's what the Bible says. He can't understand the things of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that he is blind to the light of the gospel. Romans 8.7 and 8 says he is unable to submit to God or please him. At some point, you've got to say, yeah, this, this poor individual, the person outside of Christ has a real problem. And the only person who can solve that problem is God. So for an unbeliever to move from his natural condition of spiritual darkness to one of light and faith in Christ, God has to open his eyes and impart saving faith to him. Salvation is God's free gift to us. We cannot take any credit for it whatsoever. Faith on the other hand, is that, that the hand that receives the gift of salvation. If I say, hey, I got a gift for you after church, meet me out in the parking lot and I'll give you the gift. If I show up with my gift and you don't show up because you don't have the faith that I'm going to show up, guess what? You're not getting the gift. But if you show up, I'll give you the gift. I don't have a gift for anyone, by the way, just to clarify. <coughs> salvation is totally from God. So all the glory goes to God. Salvation is totally of God, apart from any human work or merit. And God's gift of salvation is received through faith alone. The third point here, and then we'll close. Salvation results in a life of good works. This is verse 10. We're saved by grace through faith apart from works, 
but the faith that saves always results in good works. One commentator wrote, None more firmly than Paul rejected works before or after conversion as a ground of salvation. None more firmly demanded good works as a consequence of salvation. We see this all the time with young people. Parents come and say, oh, little Johnny, you know, he came to Christ. Uh, can we get him baptized? And it's like, well, why don't we just hold off and see what happens in little Johnny's life? See if he's really saved. Because if he's really saved, what will you see? You will see an evidence of change. You'll see something happening in little Johnny's life to where, wow, this kid really loves the Lord. He's different. Something happened to him. God has imparted new life to him. Well, yeah, then, then let's, let's walk through the waters of baptism by all means. But we have to confirm that. The root of salvation bears the fruit of a godly life. Paul emphasizes over in verse 10 where he says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Paul's saying that salvation is entirely of God. It's a result in the life of good works. We can't claim any glory for ourselves. We're responsible to walk in the works that God has given to us. The motivation to walk in those works comes from God's gracious salvation because he rescued us from an awful punishment. You know, if someone, if you were in the middle of the street and you had an issue, a car was going to hit you or whatever, and someone came out and saved you from that dire situation, you would probably feel indebted to them. You would probably say, wow, you know, you just saved my life. Is there anything I can do for you? You wouldn't say, oh, yeah, thanks for punching, you know, and punch him in the nose and walk away. You wouldn't do that. Why? That would be ingratitude. But so many believers... They come to Christ, and then they say, well, I'm just going to do whatever I want. No. God changes your heart. He gives you new desires. You desire to do what's right before him. So to share that message effectively, the idea that God saves us apart from any human works by grace through faith resulting in a life of God works, you have to get across to people some awareness of that truth that they are lost because their sins have alienated them from God. They're unable to do anything to earn his favor. The good news is is that we cannot do what God has done. He sent his own son to bear the penalty that we deserve. And it's through the death on the cross and the resurrection from the dead that God now has a basis of offering us salvation through Christ, by our faith in his work. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that we would understand, maybe a little fuller, what it means to be saved. That it's not just coming to church. It's not just getting baptized or taking communion or praying before we fall asleep at night or before a meal. It's seeing God transform our lives. Lord, we were all at one point lost in our sin, standing before you in righteous judgment, in need of mercy and grace. And Lord, it's by your grace that you have saved us. And so, Father, we pray this morning, if there's any here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I acknowledge my sin before a holy God. Save me. Help me to see this as true. Change my heart. If there's any people here this morning who have mental assent in Christ, they say they believe in Christ, and yet that when they look at their life, it's just like every other worldly person. There's no change. There's no desire of God for godliness or prayer or fellowship or desire to study his word. There's none of that. If that's the case, then more than likely you're probably not saved. And you need to go before God and really examine your heart before him. 
We're not judging you. We're, we're pointing you in the direction of life. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would do your work. Bless our time of fellowship as well over in the fellowship hall afterwards. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with a song.